What's happening? Welcome to another episode of MicroShiner's Life Distilled. I'm Brian Carey, and we're going to get chatting in just a moment. But first, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Open Road Scooters. Visit orscoot.com to check it out and learn more. But I must tell you, these are not your average scooters. They are electric scooters with a top speed of 55 miles per hour and 55 miles on a single charge. So you do the math. You can smash this thing all day. I use mine to run errands and uh, just cruise downtown. But really, they are a great time. They're a lot of fun. Um, And by listening to this podcast, you can save 5% on your first purchase. Go to orscoot.com, enter the promo code MICROSHINER, and it will save you 5% on your purchase at orscoot.com. Check them out and get scooting. Just start smashing. Just cruise around. Just do stuff. And uh, wear a helmet because they go fast. Okay. So this episode, I was in Denver, Colorado at the ADI conference, which is American Distilling Institute. And uh, they hold a conference every year where they have an expo. You know, you could buy a still, check out corks, bottles, packaging, whatever you need for your distillery. Or if you're new to the biz and just want to distill or learn how to, there's tons of breakout sessions and seminars for knowledge if you want to gain some. I also met up with the founder of MicroShiner and my partner, Kobe Williamson. Him and I sat down with Bill Owens, the founder of ADI, and Bill's son, Eric Owens, as well. So uh, we had a great time. Check it out. Welcome to Life Distilled. Here we explore the world of craft spirits and introduce you to the people and products that are making this world a better place, one small batch at a time. It is Zen and the art of micro distillation, your window into craft culture and your connection to the makers, creators, achievers, and thought leaders who are charting a path forward, cocktail in hand. This is Life Distilled. Welcome to another episode of Life Distilled. I'm Kobe Williamson, and let me tell you, you're in for a real treat with this episode here today, because not only am I here with my co-founder and partner, Brian Carey, but we're coming to you from the very top of the world of craft spirits, Denver, Colorado, and our guest today is the godfather of the craft distilling movement here in the United States, president and founder of the American Distilling Institute, Bill Owens, and the heir apparent, his son, Eric. Thank you. Bill, thanks for taking the time, Eric. Sure. I, I want to like, Applause. Be the crowd. Applause. <laughs> Absolutely. So my understanding is that what, what really made ADI uh, what it is started with these forums that you created online, which is where you really kind of got the momentum um, at the very dawn of the craft distilling movement here in the United States. But now we're sitting here in what is truly the mecca of, of craft distilling in Colorado at the 16th ADI convention. And you got a thousand, a couple thousand uh, attendees. Over 1,800. 1,800? Come through the door. Well, that was as of this morning, so. There's distilleries all around the 1800. country. 1,800. And around the world, too. 1,800 confirmed registrations no before way. we started today. That's yeah. awesome. It grows 30% a year, pretty religiously. A, a lot has changed. Can you tell us how you got started in all this, Bill? Oh, my God. That's too. Um, 
I ran away from home, <laughs> put, my clothes, put my clothes in a cardboard box, and decided I want to see America. So I'd been the publisher of America, uh, American Brewer magazine, and one of my magazines had made a list of uh, small distilleries. So I drove across America visiting breweries, because I used to have a brewery, and visited a couple of craft distilleries. And then when I got back, uh, I'm sitting in a coffee shop with a typical long hair who doesn't have a job, and he's reading a manual on how to flip property. So I tell him, you know, you need to look in a mirror. You are not a property appraiser. I said, watch this. I'm going to go start a new business. So I just get in my car, drive to uh, the county seat, do the DBA, American Distilling Institute. Uh, in those days, I think you had to write in to, to get your EIN. There wasn't the internet. You got my EIN number, and then you go to the bank and you make a deposit. So now you're, no, you make a deposit and get a checking account. So now you have a business and no money. But you, at least you have $100 in the bank. So you say, what can I do to make money? I'll have a craft, I'll have a show. So I went to St. George Distillery uh, and talked to York and said, can I uh, bring a bunch of people in on a Saturday and have a meeting here of craft distillers? So I think I had a list of about 60 craft distillers I knew. And you have to remember in those days there was no internet. So you wrote them a letter and say, we're having a meeting on such and such a day, come by. And so as the day get, as, as it got closer and closer, I probably only had 30 to 40 uh, responses. And I asked a couple of vendors also, Forsyth's from Scotland and Vendome and some others. Uh, the, uh, I said to myself, I better rent table, uh, chairs. So I rented, uh, I think it was 75 chairs. And so when the meeting started, every chair was full and Dan Farber was in the back grilling me and a few people in the back so I could Still count. Is. And I knew there was 86 people at the first meeting. And what year was that? I don't know. 2003. Okay. 2003. 2003. Thank you. So the next year we had another meeting in St. George. It began to grow and get some inertia. But in those days, uh, ADI was just uh, my assistant would come in one day a week. And we'd do a little bit of ADI and do my photography business and do other things. It was not not a real viable business making any money. Uh, but I soon realized that I am, I'm, I've been in publishing all my life and I should do a magazine. And so I did the first uh, distiller magazine um, and uh, tried to be quarterly, but you can't be because you don't have the time and energy and the money to be quarterly. So the first couple of years is maybe two issues and then you begin to get a little more people, then you do three issues and then you do four issues of the magazine and each time the conference has moved around the country uh, to different locations and it begins to, to, to build as more and more people, you, you develop a mail, I'm, I've always loved mailing lists, so I developed a mailing list of everybody so I could mail everybody, and I still fight about this with staff. Staff wants to email everybody, and I say, people don't read emails, I want that postcard on their desk. So we do both now. Uh, but you, it's, it's really hard uh, to motivate people, uh, even in their best interest, to come to a conference like this and take a look at these presentations on whiskey and gin and oh my god here's David Smith talking on gin I want to take that class so now it's uh, over the years it's just uh, grown to uh, I don't know 60 breakout sessions 10 hands-on classes uh, bus tours and everything and we're just uh, plowing ahead that's all 
I was looking back on some of the numbers, and 10 years ago, there was about 200 distilleries, and now we're over 1,550 distilleries. So in the last 10 years, it's like 800% growth. So 10 years ago, ADI was itself was a very small thing as well. Yeah, what were the numbers this morning? It was 200, or sorry, 2,950 No, that's a DSPs. Yeah. So, you know, we have, I've seen other number of people right. put numbers yeah, of misleading. 1,800 right. distilleries out okay. there. I believe a lot of those are rectifiers or brands right. that aren't really true active distilleries. I manage the database myself and I'm constantly updating it. And uh, yeah, so around 1,550 is the number that we have, and okay. Michael Kinslick double checks that yeah. number. So he, he's actually more conservative than me, and his numbers are even a, a little lower. So. Got it, got it. And at the beginning of this, kind of in the intro, I said that you were kind of the godfather of the craft distilling yeah. movement in the United States. And, and what I really mean by that is, is the bulk of those 1,500 distillers came to ADI to, to vet their idea, to, to take those first steps. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about how that process has worked and, and your experience being kind of the, the person people turn to first to say, hey, I want to start a distillery, Bill, what well, do I do? That, that's it's all on the internet. You go to distilling.com and anything you want to know, it's there or better yet, you go to the ADI forum, 10,000 people a month are on the forum. It's huge. So they, I don't have to pay attention to the forum because they're helping each other. Right. And so if there's anybody bad-mouthing them, uh, we hear from them and we take them off, right? That happens once every six months when somebody puts disinformation. But uh, and then we publish lots of books. And my latest book is on how to build a nano. And I'm really proud of this book because it took well over a year to do, but I have the 50 things you need to buy to open a distillery. And not only do I list them, I list the website and the approximate price. So if you add them all up, all 50 things, it's about $42,000 to open a nano. But I quickly say, you need another $100,000 to take the burn. And the burn is you can't get open. You can't get the building, you can't get the lease signed, uh, the TTB, label approval, all this stuff, and you're just gonna burn money for two years minimum. And so you know, I try to make people really aware. At this meeting, also, again, I tried to convince staff to let me have a guy came in who failed. And he's really interesting, he's in three wells. Uh, he has 465 uh, places his whiskey sold in Arizona. And he said, well, I took on some debt. Um, I, and I looked at his equipment, he had good equipment. He had a good label, uh, prickly pear uh, vodka, which is a good label. Uh, but he just ran and he had a partner who was a little scruffy. The partner's not pulling his weight, so he wanted to pull out. But I wanted him to, to come to talk about being a failure because failure stories are really important. And I once did a pizza conference, and the pizza conference, I was just a speaker promoting beer and pizza. I had people come up whose pizza parlors failed. And it was really fun to hear this, these stories of people uh, getting the phone call at seven o'clock in the morning saying, are you going to work? And they said, uh, yeah, we're going to work. And he said, why'd you call? And he said, because your pizza parlor's on fire. <laughs> and it burnt to the ground. So then they have to start all over again. So those kind of stories versus uh, uh, people have funding. But what's the other end of the extreme, uh, the other end of the industry <clears throat> is people are coming in now who are funded. They got $10, $10 million 
and they can spend that money and not bat an eye. Right. So they need to hire professional consultants. Uh, they need to hire uh, architects. Uh, they need a huge learning curve, and most of those people are veterinarians, doctors, professional people who uh, been 20 years in their industry, they're barely 50 years old and they're bored being an architect. Or like John Hickenlooper, you get fired being an archeologist or whatever, and you want to change in your life, well, here's, here's an opportunity for you to go learn, and nobody's gonna open up your head and pour all that knowledge in. You gotta teach yourself what you do, and I, I just simply tell everybody, get in your car and visit every distillery you can, because then you'll get your concepts down. And you've kind of done that. How many distilleries uh, have you been to, Bill? I don't know. I would say four to 500. I've traveled, driven across the country three times. And then I do, uh, last year I did half of Canada. And this year I'll do the other half of Canada out to Prince Edward Island. And just go uh, shake hands, say hello, uh, see what they're doing. Uh, you know, lay a magazine on them and, and look for stories to be written. There's a new uh, floor malting in Prince Edward Island. I want to go see these guys because when we were working on the floor malting book, they were really helpful. And so I want to go say thank you for helping. Gabe was the guy who wrote the book, uh, put that together. So the, the people I approach on uh, doing books, like right now we have uh, Robert Castle is doing a book on uh, how to set up a lab in a distillery. Well, there is no book on how to set up a lab. You know, what kind of instrumentation, what are you going to check for, etc. So we're well into this book, so uh, we'll probably go to a couple small distilleries that have a real lab take some photographs and say, here are the five pieces of equipment you need, here's what they co co cost, and here's your procedure to check what's going on in your distillation process. So those kind of books are, are really important to, to people out there. So we try to keep pushing. Uh, I have an Apple Brandy book coming. I have a Cooperage book coming. And some of these books take like two years to happen because people have full-time jobs. And we just keep the print-on-demand books so they don't cost any money and we just run them up the flag and see what happens. So there's, I think, I don't know if somebody said it to me, but they were like, like, has anybody visited more distilleries than Bill Owens? No. I, I met a guy yesterday, uh, what is it, Aaron Linden, he does insurance, I'm, and he gets around a lot. I'm like, maybe he's neck and neck, or no. they're probably pretty close, but yeah. It's fun, you know, you just, uh, I've thought about taking a camper truck. Nope, I just show up, find a motel, see the people, get back in the car, and the next day I'm gone. You know, so it's, the burn is about $100 a day for a hotel and gas, so it's not that bad. You just gotta have, if you're gone for three months, you better have $3,000 to burn. And the home fires are being taken care of by Christy or one of my other assistants, and Eric's on the job now, so I can, I can disappear for a couple, three months. Uh, last year, I was 52 days out and made a trip around the world. And so you gotta be able, but also when you're traveling, Morning, I do my email. Evening, I'm doing my email. Nobody knows I'm gone. As long as you keep up on your email, you're on top of it. And don't worry about the phone calls. You could be anywhere in the world. Yeah. Well, having gone around the world like that, what's, what's your picture of the landscape? Like, what do you think is going on out there? Uh, lots of disinformation, lots of things being done wrong. Um, the gin renaissance is major, as you know. Uh, and the cocktail thing is major. All the People I visited had really good cocktail bars, uh, but everybody's in love with whiskey, and when I look at what they're doing in whiskey, they're doing it the cook and corn, which I try <clears> to say, be a brewery distillery and cook and mash two-row barley. I can do three mashes in one day where you can do only do one corn cook. 
and make single malt whiskey. And single malt whiskey is going to be really big. And it's not going to be a brand that swoops around the world in, in Japanese bars. You're going to be in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado, and people know who you are, and you're selling your whiskey and making some money and creating absinthe and creating other kinds of interesting products along with what you're doing and paying your bills, paying your taxes, and, and great, great pride of owning your own business. Uh, the other thing I see is a lot of husband and wife teams, which is really unusual. <clears throat> and the women are pulling their weight, and it's not like in other industries where the, the wife is at home or has another business. Uh, these couples uh, pull together, and sometimes a woman does all the distilling. I was listening to your interview with uh, Stephen Gould, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the quotes I pulled out of there is there's 1,500 to 1,600 craft distilleries, predominantly family-owned business that are economic drivers in every community they're in. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely what excites me about this yeah. entire scene. Yeah. Um, yeah, Brian and I were talking last night about how American single malt really is appearing to us to be the IPA of craft spirits. Yeah. yeah. So it, Some it, people have a negative connotation with, with IPA, but yes. Yeah. yeah. As far as kind of just being the thing that you can you can kind of count on. Yes. You know, everybody's yeah. got one, and they all are somewhat similar in character. Well, uh, there's such folklore with it, too. I'll, I'll <coughs> from moonshine not, on. I'll try not to be rude here, too. And, you know, we I've tasted a lot of bourbon. I've tasted a lot of two-year-old bourbons. And right. I think, in general, a two-year-old single malt is, to me, more preferable than a two-year-old bourbon. Yeah. Plus, like, they're starting to get into the terroirs and the regions of single malts, which is also very cool, um, for, especially for, you know, North America. Have regions of whiskey is exciting. Yeah, I like it when the they... The Empire Rye and, uh -huh. yeah. I like it when they take me out and show me the dirt. Yeah. Here's where we're raising our wheat. Yep. And here's our mill, and here's our still, and here's our product. And there's yeah. great pride of returning back to basics where if your family grew alfalfa for the last three generations, that's over with. Mm -hmm. the, the family farms are failing uh, left and right, uh, but if you uh, visit a big uh, malt house, uh, root, shoot. root shoot, and they were incredible. They've, they've invested a million dollars into this, it's four times bigger than a cement mixer drum, and I said to them, in two years, you, this will be paid off. Because not only can they sell to breweries and distilleries, you can sell to bakers. They want local to all and things that are grown here and mm -hmm. rye's coming around. And I'm not a rye person. I'm a barley person. Rye's a bitch to work with and yeah. uh, enzymes and all the other stuff. A lot of people also that I met on this trip uh, will say to me, I like doing things the hard way. And I'm shaking my head saying, why, why, why are you doing it this way? It's not right. But he just hard-headed and doing it. The, Eric walked out <laughs> of the room. He didn't want to keep talking to the guy, but he's doing a whole bunch of things wrong. Hmm. And he hasn't read a book. He hasn't talked to any other distillers. And he's just doing stupid things. Well, his money, he'll learn. That's not, not the best procedure. But there's, uh, again, we're working on EDU, education, <clears throat> to have education over the internet and more classes. And that education is critical. You know, people want to know, and you can't go to any university in America at all and get a degree in distilling a few off, or in brewing, there's a few uh, degrees in brewing, and usually it's just one graduate class with three students, and that's about it. And so that area of 
education, but the internet changes it all too. I tell people, recently I went on YouTube and I said, I'll just take a look and see what's going on in home distilling. And the guy's behind us, a desk just like this, his little still, and he's just talking in the camera, no production value at all. And he had his facts down. He was not doing disinformation. And I thought, that's really good. He's saying, you do this and this and this, and you'll get that kind of results. And it was really nice to see those low production YouTube films of some guy out of his kitchen talking about how he makes vodka or whatever. Yeah, that is, that's really fun. I mean, how people start so young and well, just start by experimenting in their backyards yeah. and the knowledge that you need to gain. So. Well, I, I think the future also is brewery distillery because yeah. the mash is the same. Mm -hmm. Mash goes to beer or mash goes to distilling. But also, when you think about it, a lot of wineries can add a small still and make brandy. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of vacation resorts. I think there's a big cruise ship that now has a still on it. Right. <laughs> oh, so wow. you can put these stills everywhere in the world. I just wonder if we can catch the number of brew pubs out there. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can because you can buy these nanos you know, for $18,000, you got a still. If you buy neutral grain spirits, <clears throat> you're making gin one day and selling it the next day. So that really changes the model. If you're making whiskey, you're, you're two years out. Mm -hmm. okay. And back to the education part too, there is, I mean, what you learn online, but there's this whole other aspect of it, which is the sensory, which, you know, you, that's, it's something that's gotta be done in, in person, in more of a group setting and with professionals as well. I don't know how to, you know, I, everybody I meet who does brown spirits, I'm like, you know, you should take Nancy Fraley's class or whatever sensory class you can get your hands on because until you, uh, you know, I, I started this and I taste things and I'm like, oh, it's good. And then I sit with other judges and they're like, oh no, there's this thing burning on my palate in the back or there's this off flavor in there. Yeah. And until you go through those things with real professionals, with people who are spirit judges, you just can't pick parts of it out or, or find faults. It's, spirits is so concentrated. And so it's just this crazy experience across your palate. But yeah, I don't know you how to. You so gotta go through nuances. training. Yeah. You have yeah. to train yourself. And only now can I taste water. I never paid any attention <laughs> to water. I'm in a hotel. Oh, this is great water. The next hotel, I go, oh my God, this water is terrible, right? <laughs> I never travels. paid any attention to water, but now I can taste water. water so people always want to pour me a drink. I said, I'm the wrong person. I just drink because it's fun <laughs> to hang out and, and to be in a bar and talk. Yeah, That's what's fun for, for me. But uh, there's a next level of people that want to take it to that level of, as a real business. And they're out there and, they're, and there's some real farmers now that have two or 300 acres of wheat and they're, they're gonna drop a million into that uh, distillery because they know <clears throat> for generations, nobody came out to, to that farm. They passed it on to the sons. They were always a wheat price control, very little profit. But once they open a distillery, every weekend, there's 30 or 40 people coming out there. Oh, here's our wheat, here's our corn. And you can brag about being a farmer for three generations. Otherwise, you're just another farmer struggling to get ADM to pay you a better price. So it's, it's a, to me, it's an exciting time to be in it. It is a bit of a renaissance of, of colonial America and, and the founding of our country yeah. and all the things that we were, were. Yeah, we're doing a rum book right now too. Based our best-selling book, uh, two to one over the whiskey books is a rum book. And I keep saying, where's all this rum being distilled? And I looked on the databases, 400 people making rum. Well, it's not their primary product to be making whiskey, some rum or gin and rum. 
But they're making rum because it's pretty simple. It's sugar, fermentation, distillation, and into the barrel. So it's much easier to do. And yesterday, I went to this discovery called 300 Days of Shine, and he is making a moonshine uh, from sugar beets. Mm -hmm. And the fermentation was vigorous, but also I took a photograph of him in Iraq with those He's the guy digging out the IUDs or whatever it is. So oh, wow. spent three or four years. So I said, are you still suffering from PST? And he says, yeah, I have a hard time going to Kmart because I'm always looking around who's going to try and kill me. <laughs> but his products, then at the end, he gave us a little taste of his whiskey. And it was so damn good, I bought a bottle. Everybody on the car bought a bottle of his whiskey. And Tony <coughs> was with me. He said, this is as good as any Scotch whiskey <laughs> I've ever tasted made wow. from sugar. But that barrel then, what's going on there, we don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's really uh, fun to have somebody with just, he doesn't have $20,000 in that distillery. You know, plastic fermentation tanks, homemade still, a little bar, there's two people, his medals on the wall from being in Iraq, you know, and his wife and his daughter work in the distillery and he's doing fine. That's great. We were actually talking about this at the table um, right before you guys kicked this thing off with the keynote. And um, the woman that was sitting with us, she said, well, there's these folks and they think that they can start one of these distilleries with $50,000. And then we were also talking about uh, the other end of the spectrum, which you also alluded to, you know, the, the $10 million guy that walks in and is like, build this for me. It really does seem that there's a bit of a, a divergence in the paradigm and that we are moving into a brew pub, this distill, distillation pub model on one end, the nano distillery like you described, and then the, the $10 million plug and play. 10, 20, 30, 40. I you know, one of the stereotypes I have about the industry is engineers. You go around and you meet a lot of engineers. And yeah, I mean, there are people that build their business for 100000 or $200,000, but they're doing everything. They're building their bar. They're piping everything they can. Yeah. They're doing, you know, yeah. they're, they're very engaged. And so, yeah, they can do it inexpensively, but, you know, it's not everybody in the world can say. Has those skills. I sort of, you know, engineers are the people that are like, be like, oh yeah, I can build a distillery, right? Like, I, you know, I I don't, you know, like most people, I don't think have the, that set of job skills engineers in general do, right? But when I went around yesterday with Robert Castle <coughs> to four or five distilleries, we would walk in and say, what's wrong with them? <laughs> oh my God, this is, this still is huge in a little tiny room and all I have is a you bar. You used to do that with restaurants. We go out to restaurants yes. and he'd say, what's wrong with this restaurant? You know, the, the hole in the wall, the, you know, menu's the, the tear over there, the yeah. menus are dirty. Where the door is, where they have to bring yeah. the food out. Yeah. yeah, They're bumping into each other as <clears> they yeah. come yeah. in and out. But in the distilling business, I, I can quickly spot, you know, yesterday at Block, uh, the mill is upstairs. So they're carrying 50, 40 or 50, 50 pound bags of grain upstairs. Well, they're going to expand next year, but for the first year, you can carry that grain upstairs and mill it upstairs and have it drop down by gravity. But eventually, you want to be efficient with your time, and you just learn. You've, you'll figure that out. Who do you think will win out in the 10 million versus 100,000? I don't think there's, n there's not a contest. There's different ambitions, and there's definitely much different levels of ambition of what you want to be. 
You know, in the Bay Area, we have Sutherland Distilling, right? He's out in Livermore. He's, you know, he's got his tasting room. He's slowly growing. He has no debt, and he's very happy with that, you know? And he's, he's not trying to grow fast and do other things. And then there's Sonoma Distilling, right? Sonoma Distilling's been around for eight years now, and they, they don't have a tasting room. But they do have, I believe, those national ambitions. They're in every bar you go to in San Francisco. And, you know, I believe he just put in a 2,800-gallon steam-fired foresight. Yeah, Adam, yeah. he's been expanding for a little bit here. Yeah. 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 So. And so, but he does have more of, I believe, more of that national ambition. And then, you know, so what do you, what do, it's not what, there's not one way to do this thing, right? Yeah. So. I'm on this side of the fence. Where do you buy the equipment? How do you process the alcohol? Whatever. When you cross that fence now to marketing and wholesalers and retailers, I haven't crossed over there yet because that's 50 states with 50 different sets of rules. And you mentioned on stage that uh, Kentucky now allows you to ship. One state allows you to ship. Well, if you're in California, you'd love to ship to Las Vegas, be in the Bellagio. Why not? Right. <clears throat> so we got to work on those laws, and there's just laws, uh, lots of things that need to be worked on. So the little tiny apple brandy distillery up in Washington can ship 10 or 15 bottles to uh, an apple brandy bar somewhere. I'm sure somebody will do an apple brandy bar. I uh, wish I had the list from Robert Castle about everything they have. They're in a control state, but like they can make cocktails at the bar, they can sell as many bottles as they want, they can do interstate shipping, so they can actually take a bottle and drop it in the mail and ship it within the state. Yeah. And the, the most amazing thing, I think, is he just got the state to give him a million dollars. A million dollars for marketing craft distilleries yeah. within the state. The Department of Agriculture and Tourism, there's big money out there to be given if you know how to fill out those applications and know how to source that money. It's and out then there. there's other states out there in dry counties or other states <laughs> that don't even allow yeah. you to have a tasting room. And so uh, for me, he's, he's the model right now. And how do we get everybody from where we are today at least up to that standard? I think yeah. it would really open everything up. I was listening to Chris from Grand Canyon Distilling Talk, and he said, uh, he said I think he was, uh, he was the one that said this, that, that they can only sell two bottles a month or something yeah. like that out, out of their Nobody's checking. Their place. <laughs> but he pointed out, like, what other, what other, do mattress manufacturers have to deal with this? <laughs> yes, like, right, what right. other industry yeah, in the entire yeah, world yeah, yeah. has a limit on how many things they can sell uh, to their customer? Yeah, Timo said this to me, too, on one of the tours, which is, it's not a limit on the business. Really, it's a limit on the consumer. Like, you want to buy something, but you can't buy it. Yeah. It's so to, to re-gift it, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah, Brian was in um, Iceland recently, and he went to a distillery where they were um, fermenting and distilling birch sap. Yep. Yeah. How many bottles would you have brought home? I would have brought home a whole suitcase. That, <laughs> you know, if you I go could. Out like, to the, go out to the Blue Lagoon? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, that was Definitely. fun. Yeah, it's a good there. time. Yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. But yeah, I know exactly. I would have brought back as much as I could have. I brought back, I have that one bottle, and then I brought back, you know, a bunch of other different spirits aquavits are like their main spirit out there but my problem is it takes two years to finish a bottle yeah because i got another one i'll try that one i got another one that one just kind of pushed back but that's the goal right like when it comes to craft for me at least like i want that bar that my home bar to be 
where nobody can re- where anyone who comes in cannot recognize a single label because it's all yeah. from craft, craft distillers. Yeah. Like that's that's the dream, right? <clears throat> no gem So, beam. yeah. So. Why? And yeah, if, if you can't, if you can't can buy we wrap this up? Bottles, so I'm running out of energy. Okay, yeah, understood. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> There's 1,500. You said, Eric. Over like, what's what's the limit? Where do you see this going? I think we can catch craft brewers. 15,000. Well, who knows? 7, because because 7, uh, Sorry, my trip around, I just in the last couple of months put together the list of craft distillers in Germany, in Ireland, uh, Wales, UK, and a lot of them, are, most of them over there are NGS gin distilleries. And so I only looked up people that were grain to glass. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think UK, there's only four right. who are craft. And Scotland has uh, Scotland. Ireland has 23 of them, yeah. more than Scotland and UK put together. So people who have that DNA in their blood. They're going to make <clears throat> Irish whiskey, no matter what. So that now <clears throat> they have other problems with laws, but that equipment's out there. They can come to my other trade show, the London Expo, and you can talk to that barrel maker. You can talk to the cap producer. You can talk to the label people, and begin to put your plan together and just say, "This is where I want to be." and think further out, and too many people want instant gratification, you, you gotta think way out. And you know, that question too is really, you're only talking about the US. It's going on in Canada. Yeah. We have our conference in London. We're gonna be offering a class in Sweden this year. Yeah. Yeah. And that number, uh, I can't re- see the 26 or 3200 uh, distilleries worldwide, and this really is Peru. a worldwide phenomenon. Somebody's making gin in Peru. You know, those, Hong Kong. Those people, those people Mexico. that, uh, you know, Iron Root Republic is exporting to London. There's problems with that now, but, you know, think about that too, where these American products and there's people in Spain, mm-hmm. you know, they haven't, they don't drink bourbon, but they're, I don't even know if they're out there or introduced to it. And, you know, there's, you know, two or three craft distilleries in Spain, right? And I know they're doing their things, but really, I, I think that that American style, the rye, the bourbons, the corn whiskeys. It, local. It's, it's, I, you know, the they're going to be making local. it in China. Yeah. Guaranteed. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know I'm how. Sure the Chinese don't the have that culture of home brewing and other stuff. I'm skeptical, but maybe yeah. I could be wrong. Japanese, for sure. They, love also their they, they don't have that culture that we do on entrepreneurship. No, I, I, young, I, young I do people. think people believe that. Yeah. Okay, they probably I, do. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I, I have some friends, my wife works in a research facility and there's a lot of foreign nationals there. And when I talk with them, that's the key thing they always say. I was like, why are you here versus being back home? And they say, because here in America, the, the lid is off the pot as far as innovation. Where they come from, it's very restricted and the, the culture just isn't there to support yeah. innovation and, and experimentation. Yeah. Um, the marketing there is very difficult. Yeah. So there's maybe a little bit of leadership change down the line for ADI. What's your vision for the future for ADI, Eric? Well, I'm 80. I'm not dead yet. (laughs) Uh, I I just reduce a lot of my responsibilities and I work on books and uh, push hard on uh, uh, finding new distilleries. And then we have that weekly newsletter that's uh, 12,000 people read that. So uh, every day I'm feeding uh, information to Diane on this is the people I want screw those people you know and so we have a really i'm very proud of that newsletter and i think those are my primary responsibilities and i have to 
sort of Eric and Christy to do the day-to-day -day operations. I've, after 15 years, I don't need to be knowing how many chairs to rent for a banquet hall, you know. There, you know, it's, we've come 15 years. Bill Owens is a serial entrepreneur and there's the entrepreneurial cycle, you know, like, you know, there's the few Facebooks or whatever where somebody can found a business and run it. And so it's, there's so many things going on with ADI. We're really sort of eight businesses under one roof. And the last year I've been looking, trying to look at each one and how can we make it better? The magazine, you know. The judging. Turn, turn it into the online thing. The judging, you know, the, the com well, the conference and, you know, it's it's about team too, and like, how do you build that team, and how do you how can you get those things done? Like, Anne Sophie is our conference director, and look at it here. I don't know yeah. how she does what she does, yeah. but really, we, we can't even make a budget because we don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. We know it's going to grow, so we just do the best we can. Well, I can't let you go, Bill, without uh, finding out this little bit. So, I'm. I'm a Tumblr junkie. Most people don't mess around with Tumblr anymore, but I, I like Tumblr, and it's, so it's photo blog, and you can uh, reblog these photos that okay. you find. And I'm sifting through it one evening, you know, having my cocktail, and I see this picture of a, it's like a, someone's, a cocktail party at someone's house. <laughs> and with the Christmas tree? Yeah, and it, yes. yeah, and it says, it says, photo by Bill Owens. How, how did that happen? What is that oh, backstory? I, I, did a, I did a book decades ago called Suburbia which is a focus on what it means to be middle class. And after that book, I did Our Kind of People, Working and Leisure. Then after that, you're divorced because you don't have any money. You can't make it in the arts. And then Buffalo Bills came along. But uh, the books are, I own all the books now back, and I'm in the process of trying to uh, list some things on the internet and find a distributor, uh, but there's no money in that. I have one lady who part-time organizing the files, uh, but I have a new book I was uh, 50 years ago, I was at the Rolling Stones Ultimate concert, and I'm the guy up in the sound tower photographing the Hells Angels beating the shit out of everybody. And I, when we published those photos in Rolling Stone and Esquire and other magazines, I used three different alias names. I didn't want anybody to find me. And so, probably 15 years later, uh, we posted a YouTube film. So, if you go to Bill Owens, Rolling Dot Stones uh, Ultimate concert, that film has had over a million hits. Uh, but I, if somebody tries to email me, I won't respond. It's just, they're not gonna buy it. So I was, like one of the great joys for me is to bring my kids to the Oakland Museum and there's Bill Owens' picture hanging on the yeah, wall. Yeah. He's in the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, in no, New York, yeah. Europe. And so yeah, there's a, this whole I had a other. Guggenheim, other NEA grants, all those books. And it's wonderful to have that heritage, and that will pass on to my older son. Uh, we're doing a, a trust, and Eric will get the distilling thing, but to organize that to be donated to a museum uh, so that it's properly archived and taken care of. It's taken us probably two years to figure out how to do that. But, you know, I can, I can sell a few prints at $4,000 occasionally. Big deal. I mean, it's not on my radar. For 4000 is not on my radar. Uh, and it's nice that. Uh, people will call me up and say, oh, you're so great, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, I took those photographs you know, 44 years ago, right? Well, why don't you go back and visit them? I said, they're all dead by now, right? So you can't go back. You just keep on going. But I love digital. I mean, I got a really good eye. I make incredible digital photographs. 
I have a lot of fun with the digital camera because I can sneak a photograph of you that you never even knew I was there. Click and I'm gone. Especially the pretty girls. <laughs> all right. Are we I done? think that's a great place to close. Yeah, thank, thank you guys you. both Thanks, so much. Bill. We really appreciate thank it. Thank Congratulations you. on all thank you've accomplished, Bill. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you, Eric. It's over now. Wasn't that a great podcast? Bill Owen likes his pretty girls. I'm not going to lie. Again, thanks for listening. Like, subscribe, share. Check out our website, microshiner.com. Check out our YouTube page where you can actually watch these podcasts in 360. So you can actually see Bill Owens and Eric because they are kind of famous in their industry. Once again, uh, podcast brought to you by Open Road Scooters. Visit orscoot.com and save 5% with the promo code MICROSHINER. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. Yeah.